Our scripture this morning will come from 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. If you're familiar with scripture, you know that that's just really the beginning of the story. You have to read all the way down to verse 27 to get the full picture that we want to be looking at this morning. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being here this morning. This is the point in the service where I say, hey, wake up. And I'm glad, I'm glad to see all of you here. If you are here in, in body, then you've already been counted. But we hope that you are here in more than just body. I hope you will engage your minds as we continue to worship together this morning. So good to see Ray Dutton up here, wasn't it? To see him upright and, and feeling well and looking robust again and leading us in our thoughts at the Lord's Supper table. Ray, it's good to have you back, brother. This is also the time of the year that I usually mention when I was doing my undergraduate work in Bible. One of our professors was actually counseling the young, well, instructing because we were going to be tested on it, talking about some of the distractions that preachers will run into when they're preaching and that's going on in the audience. And he said, one of those distractions is people sleeping. And then he said, uh, to, to kind of back that up statistically, he said, remember that if you take all the people who sleep in church and lay them end to end, they would rest more comfortably. So I always remember that when we lose an hour of sleep, especially to those of you who have small children. Wow, you're to be commended for getting them up here on time and uh, with one, one hour of less sleep. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at uh, grace to use anybody. And we talked about Samson and how spiritually frail despite the physical strength of that man and how that God managed to use him with all of his frailties. And this morning, I want us to think about grace when you have done the unthinkable, and obviously our minds immediately go to another Old Testament character, and that's David. You also know the significance of David in God's plan of salvation. The Old and the New Testament records indicate that the, the gradual unfolding of God's plan to save humanity. And that takes place through all 66 books of the Bible. And few people are as critical to that plan as David, the shepherd king of Israel. He was by far the greatest of all of Israel's kings. He was, the Bible testimony itself says, a man after God's own heart. He's one of the few kings who, who never engaged in or tolerated idolatry. And that's saying a great deal about those kings. He became the forerunner, in a sense, of the Messiah who was to come. And then when Jesus did finally arrive on the scene by his birth in Bethlehem, he was called, as you recall, the son of David because of the promise that was made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You might want to read about that sometime. But as a result of that, the Messiah was expected to kind of be a David 2.0 version. And... Uh, our, our Bible's open with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I know that's absolutely astounding and insightful for me to say, but have you noticed the New Testament begins with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and in that text it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that's where it all begins in terms of Jesus' personal life and ministry. The first thing I need to do is to, to point out something that Scripture never lets us forget. And that is that King David was 100% human. If you continue reading in the text that we began a moment ago, you know that that's the case. 
that uh, as great a man as a king as he was, he was he was 100% human. And that means that he was a sinner just like the rest of us. Let me give you some quick examples of what I'm talking about. And this is just a brief cross-section of Old Testament uh, passages that deal with David's foibles. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Don't try to... To, to, to find all of these and keep up with me, but I'm just going to give you an overview. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, he lied to Abimelech the priest when he was fleeing from Saul and said that he was there to attend to the king's business when actually he was a fugitive of the king's wrath. And then over in 1 Samuel 25, he was so offended at, at Nabal because he mistreated his men that he wanted to slaughter his men and, and all of their servants, and he, he would have if Abigail had not intervened. To say that David had a hair trigger would be an understatement. And then in 1 Samuel 27, he told Achish, king of Gath, who was providing him shelter from Saul, that he had been raiding against his enemies, when in actuality he was raiding Achish's own people, and he, and he slaughtered whole towns so that no one would report his actions. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 3, 2 through 5, we learned that he had at least six wives. That is in specific and direct violation of the, of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 17. Where the Bible says that the king shall not acquire many wives for himself lest they turn his heart away. David apparently chose to ignore that six times. And then finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8, he got angry with God for the death of Uzzah when they were moving the Ark of the Covenant. We referenced that in a sermon not too long ago, when the fault, in fact, really was David for not moving the Ark as the law of Moses had provided. If they had done it right, that would never have happened. But all of those things, and even more, obviously, point us to the humanity of King David. And all of the things that we've just mentioned really pale in comparison to the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11. You might want to keep your Bible open to that passage this morning. When David is guilty of lust, of adultery, of deception, of conspiracy, and then of murder. He then attempted to cover it up by having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, come in from the war. He had been out doing his patriotic duty, fighting for Israel and and David said, bring him back home. And when Uriah would not cooperate with David's scheme, as you well recall, he gave a secret order to Joab, one of his military men, to put Uriah in the front lines of battle where David knew that Uriah would be killed, problem solved. Or at least David thought so. And then when Uriah did, in fact, die on the battlefield, David took the fallen soldier's wife as his own. Now, folks, it's hard to read that. And it's hard for me to stand up here and relate that to you without crying. I mean, David had some serious problems and he had some serious spiritual struggles in his life. And, and that, again, is an understatement. That sounds like something you would read in one of the tabloids or maybe see on the Mari Povich show. I mean, this is sordid stuff. And you will not find a more sordid tale of deception and, and murder anywhere else in the Bible. The one positive aspect of all of this is that when David was confronted by Nathan, the prophet of God, he repented and he begged God's forgiveness and the Bible said God gave it to him. That God forgave him and that's why we're using this illustration of King David in a lesson on the subject of grace because sometimes, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, we think that grace is a New Testament phenomenon when in reality it's all through the Bible. 
And it may not necessarily use the word in accounts like this one in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but the concept of grace, the presence of God's grace, is quite evident when we read the text. Notice 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. The Bible says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. You're not going to reap the immediate consequences of your sin. Otherwise, it would be capital punishment. But God has heard your plea, and he has forgiven you. But make no mistake, there are going to be consequences in David's life. And I mean plenty of them. The child conceived with Bathsheba died while still in infancy. You know about that. There were repercussions in David's own household that plagued him for the rest of his life, including violence and intrigue. And eventually one of his own sons tried to seize the throne from David and died tragically as a result. All of that, that checkered history in the life of King David is a consequence of his poor decisions, of his sin, his transgression of the word and the will of God. And yet the point of this lesson is, despite all of that, David received God's grace. And that's a wonderful thing. The bottom line of David's situation was he was forgiven. So he was able to one day sit down and write Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I'm suggesting for our edification and education this morning that David's story helps us to understand some things. The story of David's sin is really an ugly one. I think we've already established that. It's embarrassing even to talk about, but folks, we need to hear it because it helps us understand something about God's grace. We can learn, I think, most of all that God's grace isn't just for nice people who make minor mistakes. I don't think that you would say that anything that I just chronicled a moment ago about the the mistakes and the sins of David were minor. All of them involved him in a personal way, but they also had ramifications and repercussions in the lives of the people that surrounded him that were the closest to him. I mean, all kinds of people suffered because of the poor decisions that David made, and that is a matter of biblical record. Grace, though, is for sinners, and sometimes even for really big sinners, even those who do the unthinkable. Let's face it, it doesn't get much worse than having a man kill so that you can have his wife. That's difficult to even think about. But if we're quick to nominate David as the worst sinner in the Bible, the Apostle Paul would raise his hand and say, I have an objection to that movement. I think there's someone who's even worse. And he would then nominate himself. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 and 16, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, here it is, of whom I am the foremost. King James Version says, of whom I am chief. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That is, if you want to know something about God's mercy, all you got to do is just look at my relationship to God. All you got to do is just look at my track record. 
All you got to do is just look at how many sins God covered with the precious blood of Jesus Christ in my life. That's the sermon that Paul is preaching here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to me now. This, would, this should encourage us in regards to our own forgiveness and God's willingness to forgive whatever sin is in your life. Believing the gospel, the good news isn't just believing certain facts about God and about Jesus Christ and about the fact that Jesus hung on that old rugged cross in order to make that atonement for your sins and mine. All of that is a part of understanding the good news. Believing the gospel, though, also means that God will and can forgive us. And sometimes we don't teach that part of it, or at least not out loud. And I think people need to hear the message of forgiveness, don't you? I think people need to hear about God's grace and the fact that God's grace and, and his mercy is, and his kindness has to be there. It has to be intact or else he would never have made provisions for our redemption in the first place. We have no right to keep wallowing in the guilt of past sin when God has already pronounced us forgiven. At some point, perhaps early on in our Christian life, we have to ask ourselves if we, really, if we really do believe in the power of God's grace or not. And if we do, then we're probably going to have a lot more peace in our hearts as we live the Christian life. If we don't, we're always going to be wrestling with what God has done with my already forgiven sin. But watch this. It also ought to encourage us regarding the forgiveness of other people. Not just the sins in our own lives that we wrestle with and we wonder constantly, has God really forgiven me of those sins and has he forgotten those sins? Has he, has he wiped them from his book of ledgers? No one is too sinful to be saved. No one is too far from the redemptive hand of God. That applies not just to you and me. That applies to everybody around this world. God's grace is for everyone who will receive it. I believe that with all of my heart. And if that's not the truth, then I need to stop preaching. God's grace is for everyone who will receive that grace the way the Bible specifies. And it's our task. It really is our marching order, if you've read the Great Commission correctly, to make that offer of God's grace known to everybody that we can. Go preach the gospel to every creature is how Mark said it. And then it really opens the door for us to engage fully in evangelism and soul winning at all levels, which simply means spreading the good news of God's amazing grace. And we need to remind ourselves periodically that the gospel message really is good news. I know I say that from time to time, but there, here's one more reminder. We need to remind ourselves that the gospel is, in fact, God's good news. Do you remember the fact that right after the golden text of the Bible, which of course is John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the Bible then says in the very next verse, verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How about spray painting that over on an overpass somewhere? We see John 3.16 spray painted and held up in stadiums. We never see John 3.17. It's really good news to think about, talk about, and spread the word of God's amazing grace. It also ought to impress us with the fact that none of us should ever think that we could never do the unthinkable. I don't know how you react to the David story. But when I open my Old Testament and I read about David, I'm going, man, I'd never do that. I, I, I love my wife. I love my Lord. I love the church and my relationship with the church too much to ever do that. No, Randy, you're wrong. 
We, we, none of us should ever think that we are beyond Satan's reach. In fact, Paul gave us a pretty specific warning about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, here's how he said it. Wherefore, him, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The moment you began to think, Satan can't touch me, is when you are on the thinnest of ice, spiritually speaking. When you think that you have arrived spiritually and that I have done all the Christian growing and maturing that I need and I am impervious to the call of sin and temptation, Paul said, Satan has set you up to be his next victim. You are next on the list and you're going to be guaranteed one of his spiritual casualties. So it ought to impress us with the fact that none of us should ever think that we would not do the unthinkable. Because Paul's warning is very, very plain and very specific as he addresses that to, to his brothers and sisters. He's just telling us that we're spiritually vulnerable when we think that we can't be touched. Now, that's not to frighten us, but it is to inform us as to the spiritual realities and to know what we're dealing with. And to know, yes, we can not only make mistakes, but we can do the unthinkable. You know, we look back at the story of David and we wonder, how could a man... How many times have you been in a Bible class where this has been discussed? How could a man who is referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, someone so spiritual as to write so many of the Psalms that we actually have in our Bible, someone who was a forerunner and in some ways a model for the coming Messiah, how could anyone possibly ever do what David did? Am I the only one who's ever asked that question? I think, I think not. Well, here's how. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians in particular, because the flesh is never too far, never very far below the surface for any one of us. That is, the world is always calling, the world is always enticing, and there's always that spiritual battle going on between the flesh and between the spiritual side of man. For all we know, David may have just finished writing a psalm. When he decided to take a break, walked out on the patio and saw Bathsheba bathing. You know, he could have just got through working on a part of the Bible when that, that temptation assailed him. I mentioned Paul in Galatians a moment ago. Let me share two Bible passages from that. Verses 16 and 17 of Galatians 5. But I say, Paul writes, walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Paul wants us to know that civil war is going on inside every child of God. And then in verse 17 he says, For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And folks, that is so very true for every single one of us. Not just for David, not just for Samson, for everyone sitting in this building this morning. That spiritual war is going on. And if we deny it, again, we are the next one on Satan's victim list. Earlier in that same chapter in Galatians, back in verse 13, Paul would write, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serving one another. You are free in Christ, but don't use that liberty as a license to say, I can do anything I want to do, because that's when Satan has really got you. Don't miss that. The flesh will use anything to cause us to sin. Paul says even good things. And so that's why we need to always be on guard, spiritually speaking, which carries us right back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where Paul 
By the way, I didn't mention this when I mentioned verse 12 a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but Paul had just got through talking about the many mistakes that the Israelites made when they were wandering in the wilderness and how that if we're not careful, we'll be just like them, spiritually fickled and, and rebelling against the will of God. And that's when he says in verse 10, now at using them as an example, wherefore any one of you who thinks you stand, take heed lest you fall. If you think that you would not be in the, in the shoes of the Israelites and ever make those same mistakes, you need to rethink your own spiritual standing before God. So that's Paul telling us, don't think it can't happen to you. But here's where God's majestic grace once again enters the picture. Grace isn't just God overlooking our sins and pretending like they never happened. His grace also, church, it empowers us to put the flesh to death day by day. And it is supposed to be an ongoing, continuous process. It's not something that you just can do overnight. It isn't a decision that you make on the spur of the moment. It is a day-to-day process. And I often say that children of God are a construction project that continues until the end of time or till the Lord comes back or when we are ushered off this planet. And so that's something that Paul says God's grace ought to cause us to do is to, to fight that by, battle and then to overcome sin in our life by that process That goes on day by day. Remember in the wilderness temptations in Matthew chapter 4 and when they were over. And I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being tempted here. And when those temptations were over in Matthew chapter 4, the biblical record says that Satan departed from Jesus. And here it is. Until an opportune time. That just tells us that Satan wasn't through with Jesus yet. And folks... There's the the lesson, the application that we need to apply in our own lives. Any moment, the first moment that we overcome a temptation and we think that because we've been successful and you are to be commended, if you've overcome a temptation in your life, but if you think that that means that everything is over and we're all done and the spiritual situation has now been resolved for all of eternity, you need to think again. Because Paul and other inspired writers say that's not so. God's grace allows us when Satan comes ringing the door next time to allow Jesus Christ to answer the door. But, but just because we've won the battle doesn't mean that the war is over. Even with Jesus, Satan said, I'm going to leave you for an opportune time. I'll be back. Don't you worry. And also, if you've done the unthinkable or if you ever do, don't think that you are beyond God's forgiveness Because you aren't. Now that isn't intended to be an encouragement to sin. To just know that if we mess up and fess up, God will forgive us. Here's one huge reason why God's grace and willingness to forgive is not, as Paul says, a license to sin. Because like David, we will undoubtedly, listen carefully please. When we do sin, we will undoubtedly have to deal with the consequences that simply cannot be avoided. Just because God forgives us does not mean that all the consequences for our bad choices, for our spiritual misdirection, because of our sin, that those consequences just disappear. That isn't because God doesn't forgive us. It's because we have set in motion a set of forces that simply must play out. We planted the seed with our poor choices, and there will be an inevitable harvest, as we talked about about a month ago when we were looking at Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, you reap what you sow. But we may ask, but Randy, I'm having problems with finding where the grace is in that. 
That, that when you sin, when you make bad choices like David did, that you're going to have to deal with the consequences of those choices. Where is the grace in that? Shouldn't God's grace keep us from having to suffer the consequences of our poor choices? And the answer is an immediate and emphatic no. And here's why. Because if there are not consequences for our sin, we would never learn. Period. We would never learn. It's just like with our children. If you always step in and you abort the natural consequences of their poor choices, they never learn. And the same is true with God's children, no matter how old, how young we are. And here's where the grace is, by the way, in all that. Just because we slip up does not mean that we lose our relationship with God. You see, our our standing with God can and should be repaired. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. His grace, folks, is so powerful and his love is so strong that they can bring us back from, from the very brink of the spiritual precipice. No matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter how far into the distant country that we may have gone. I'm just saying, there's always hope. As long as you're willing to turn to God and to ask for his forgiveness and receive his grace, there is always hope. So we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Why is that, Randy? It's because of all the things I've done for the Lord over the span of my... Oh, no, 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 no. It's because of all the right choices I... No, 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 no. It's because of the righteousness that I myself have formulated and accrued in... No, It is in spite of all those things, in spite of my wrong choices and not because of necessarily my right choices, although right choices must be a part of a disciple's life. We understand that. But every one of us is God's people. At least in our hearts ought to go around singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. You know, all this talk about doing the unthinkable isn't pleasant to talk about or to even think about, is it? But it's real. And it really shows so clearly why Jesus had to go to the cross because every single one of us needs a Savior. And you can't just take a self-improvement course or go through a few weeks of therapy or promise to do better next time and make everything right with the sin problem in your life or in my life. Sin is too powerful and it is too destructive for that. We have real guilt. We have a stain on our souls that separates us from God. That's the sin problem. Jesus Christ is the solution. But if by his grace he provides a way for us to come back to him, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, or how far away we may be. Remember as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved, and it is not your own doing, It is the gift of God. If you would like to avail yourself of that grace this morning and become his child or to make things right in your life, we bid you come while we stand, while we sing.